Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to talk about, among other things, the content of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our Christian Cosmopolitan's grace-infused guide to the contents of the interwebs for the week as we see them. In just a moment, I'll be joined by David Zoll and Sarah Condon to discuss the contents of Another Weekends. But first, I had the distinct privilege of talking this week with Jonathan Levy, who is the author most recently of a great novel called Septimania. It's his second and was 25 years in the making. His first novel was written in 1992 called A Guide for the Perplexed. In addition to working on this novel, he's been a busy guy for the last 25 years. He was the literary critic for the LA Times. He's written for the New York Times, The Nation, Condé Nast, Traveler. He's written lots of other plays and opera libretti that have been performed internationally. He currently lives in Rome and is artistic advisor to the Zauberzee Festival in Lucerne, Switzerland, and co-director of the Gabriel Garcia Marquez Fellowship in Cultural Journalism in Cartagena, Colombia. What a renaissance, man, and what a fun conversationalist. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I am here for the first time uh, on the Mockingcast with Jonathan Levy, who is the author of two novels. Uh, 25 years ago, the first was uh, A Guide for the Perplexed, right? That's right. And now I have in my hands, beautiful cover, by the way. Uh, oh, thanks. Septima- Septimania. Now, somebody said that, in, I think it was in Publishers Weekly, that uh, that to try to explain the plot of Septimania will make one sound like you're driven with madness um, or something like that in the review. But I actually, fe- so we have, I'll take a five second stab at it. You know, we find this graduate student, uh, Mallory, in his 20s uh, in Oxford in the late 70s, and he meets this kind of this math genius who's a lovely woman louisa in all places the uh or in the organ loft in a church they make love uh and the rest of his uh, much of the story is his search for her uh, she kind of he finds her and then she's elusive and in the process he finds out he's the heir to the kingdom of septimania runs into pope john paul ii uh one of the 9-11 bombers <laughs> finds a seed from the original tree of knowledge, uh, the fruit of the original tree of knowledge, and a host of other things. Uh, it's no wonder it took you 25 years for the second novel. There's a lot going on here. Well, I don't know. It's just the story of my life. You know, what can I say? It's very simple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, you say that. It's interesting that Nietzsche says that like all philosophy is simply the confession in some way or another of the philosopher. Is that true of novelists, you think? I'm not sure about other novelists, uh, but certainly in you know in my case, I think what we uh, what I try and do my novels is try to make sense of the questions that push me in life, and so therefore, of course, I'm uh, uh, you know I'm reaching into I suppose the deeper questions that I've got, you know, perhaps not the autobiographical stuff, the you know the the facts that exist on the surface, but the stuff that drives me and confessing those. So to that extent, I'm uh, I'm right there with Nietzsche. Do you think there's something about writing a, a great novel like Jack Kerouac and his Rules for Spontaneous Prose, which I think he did after he 
wrote The Subterraneans. And one of the things he says in there is, listen to your own inner dialogue or inner monologue. Uh, is some of that like the key, like the, if you know your own story, that you can write stories that everybody will connect with? I think it's more that if you know your own questions, uh, you can write stories. I'm not sure that we ever know our own story, but I think that what drives us are those kind of questions. And to try and figure them out, we enter into dialogue with ourselves the way Kerouac uh, uh, talks about it. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you find yourself during the day sometimes ask, you know, talking to yourself and asking yourself questions and saying, should I go this way? Should I go that way? And, uh, you know, no amount of GPS is somehow going to tell you the answer. I mean, maybe that's the gift of a good novel that pushes us into our own question asking as readers. Well, I think part of it is that, you know, the very act of writing a novel is being by yourself uh, in a quiet room. And so, uh, you know, whether you like it or not, the only person that you're really talking to is yourself uh, during that time. So what questions of yours drove this book? Like, how do you, I mean, this is an epic kind of book. I mean, it covers a lot of, it covers different areas of history. I mean, it, it, it's a really interesting, it's a page turner, but one of substance. So what how, What questions drove its well, creation? I suppose at the root, you know, when you mentioned at the beginning that it's a love story, essentially, between Mallory, my young uh, ne'er-do-well uh, graduate student who's also an organ tuner, and this girl he meets, Louisa, and he meets, he makes love to her once and she disappears. And as he looks for her for the next 50 years, finding her and not finding her, he's also looking at the same time for the one rule that guides uh, all of life. He's a student of Isaac Newton. He knows everything that there is about Isaac Newton. And he believes he's found uh, a key to a search that Newton was making to find the one rule that would guide the universe uh, scientifically. At the same time, he finds out that he's king of Septimania, which means that he's the heir to the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, so he's the, he's the head of all Christianity. He finds he's also king of the Jews and quite possibly uh, caliph of all Islam. So he's the head of three great monotheistic religions, which all believe that there's one answer in the same way that there's one rule that guides the universe, one, uh, one girl, perhaps, who's going to guide his life. And I suppose at the basis, that's, uh, that's the question I'm asking. Is there one? You know, is there, is there one answer to everything that's going on? Is there uh, just one uh, love object? And if there isn't, if there are many, and the title of the book is Septimania, you know, seven mania. Um, if you start thinking, well, maybe there are multiple things that guide life. Maybe there are many possibilities. Is that, in fact, going to drive you manic? And is it going to drive you crazy? How, how did this is a historical reality septimania i mean you, you've done some research on this this is you know this medieval origins of this uh, seven city kingdom right well there was a kingdom called septimania back in the eighth century uh that existed with seven uh seven cathedrals seven cities down in the southwest of france or the the western part of what became known as languedoc and historically we know that uh charlemagne's father gave this to the jews of the region of narbonne in thanks for delivering Narbonne from the Saracens, from the Moors who uh, who were occupying it. And he did it under the proviso that they send away to Baghdad for a prince of the Jews, descended from the line of King David, to come and marry Charlemagne's daughter. And this was important for a few reasons, because uh, the king of the Jews was descended from King David, as was Jesus. And that Charlemagne's thought then was that he would be, his grandchildren would combine the line of Jesus with the line of Charlemagne and give him legitimacy when he then went in 800 to Rome and crowned himself Holy Roman Emperor. 
Now, this much is more or less fact, but when we're talking about fact, we get the story from a contemporary uh, of Charlemagne's named Einhard, and then a guy who lived a generation afterwards, known familiarly as Nutker the Stammerer. So these are two 8th and 9th century accounts. What a name to have to, what a name to, have to live down at a party. This is uh, not, I mean, I like Stammerer. <laughs> well, you know, luck, luckily there was no Skype and there was no internet in those days. So, uh, you know, I think he probably, when he went traveling, he, he, he changed his name and got known as something else. But the point is, what do we know about history? You know, we, uh, when we say that, the, yes, there was a place called Septimania. Yes, there uh, is this story about Charlemagne sending away to Baghdad to the king of the Jews. There's stories about Charlemagne's um, interaction with Harun al-Rashid, who was the caliph uh, of Islam based in Baghdad. Who, who appears became, in the book, who appears in the book as well. Who appears in the book as well. He's also a fictional character because he is sort of the main character, one of the main characters in A Thousand and One Nights, in Arabian Nights. And, uh, and yet he did actually live. And we know that he did, uh, supposedly send an elephant to Charlemagne as a gift. There are all kinds of bits and pieces that we know, but can you imagine? I mean, we have enough, we have enough trouble trying to, uh, you know, figure out which account of reality is true. Is it Fox News or is it the New York Times <laughs> nowadays? And, you know, I mean, here we are arguing between Einhard's version and not Kerr the Stammerer. And that was, uh, what? You know, twelve hundred years ago. Um, yeah. So this is where a novelist feels that perhaps uh, he or she can play a little bit uh, loose with the rules. You know, it's interesting the part where the character who's going to be who is the prince who is um, Baghdad explains to uh, his the guy who basically handed over Yeshua who handed over uh, Septimania to Charlemagne. He said, "You know, you know the cost." of maintaining power. He knows the cost of acquiring it. Yes. What a great line. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, but it is, uh, it does show, I mean, I think it's not just for people like that, for a guy like Yehoshua who betrays his neighbors, his Muslim neighbors, and uh, opens the gates of Narbonne and allows Charlemagne and the Franks to come in and essentially slaughter uh, the Moors in order to save, you know, Yehoshua does this in order to save his own people, uh, the Jews. But these type of type of decisions are not just ones that exist in history. They're, they're, um, uh, they're decisions that we are making every day now, you know, as Americans, as citizens of the world. And uh, to that extent, I think that any writer, I think any writer of good historical fiction is looking to the present day as much as he's looking to the past. You know, that's the reason for contemplating history is to hopefully mean that we have learned something from it and that we don't have to repeat it. Mallory, it's early on in, in the novel, you say that Mallory has spent his life avoiding complexity. And he, you know, he t takes comfort in, you know, in numbers, in tuning or an organ and things that are, that seem to be very like predictable, fixed. Uh, and yet this, this unfolding of the story involves uh, lots of complexity and lots of emotional depth uh, and engagement. Uh, it, it, it's amazing that as a guy that uh, seems pretty articulate with words, you can write convincingly someone that struggles with words <laughs> and with relationality. Yeah. Well, I think what you try and do is you try and put yourself uh, not just in dialogue with yourself, as I said at the beginning, but to put your characters in dialogue with themselves and with others and to get a sense of who these characters are and how they think. Uh, and, um, you know, some people have asked me whether I think of myself as Mallory, and I think the question, you know, the answer is, well, sometimes. 
But, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, it, the questions that Mallory asks, looking for simple answers um, are questions I think all of us ask, but sometimes complexity sort of hits us in the face and causes us to uh, rethink that. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think that, yeah, that that is probably the thing that is so tragic about a lot of religious observance that I think people come, much like Mallory, in search of themselves and are a complex, you know, ball of memories, some traumatic ones, emotions, hurts. And and so often people either offer right-wing or left-wing simple political truths or or truisms, like if you just believed more, you'd understand everything. And when really, if we could hear something uh, more like a unilateral love that was mysterious, that helped you deal with complexity and accept it, then you could, you could actually, you know, wrestle with it. Or, you know, I think the way that we writers uh, often think of it, uh, which is that we may, uh, we may not be able to offer any kind of simple answer or even a complex answer, but we can offer words to contemplate, you know, as we're all looking for that answer. Now, it's really interesting that the book begins on a note of failure and loss, that he, that uh, Mallory gets this, uh, you know, letter that says his dissertation, his thesis is cut off, like he's done, he's missed the deadline, pay your pay the bill to the bursar and you're out. And then he loses a grandmother uh, who, who you don't, I mean, who, he doesn't know his connection to her. For, so like, and then it's almost a loss of a loss. Like, I don't even know what I lost on one level. Um, so, I mean, was that, I mean, I'm assuming that was pretty intentional to begin the, the finding of oneself and, and the pursuit of real love in the midst of loss. Yes. Well, I think absolutely. I think the, um, you know, the general rule of thumb for writing a story is, you know, things go good and then things go bad and then they go good and they go bad and good and bad. And that, uh, you know, it's, which is like life. If you look back at your life, you think about the highs and the lows and what you try and, uh, what I think we look for in life is how to, once we're at the bottom, how do we turn ourselves and get back up to the light again? And the thing that drives Mallory and that, of course, when you're, you're dealing with re- readers looking at that, you say to yourself, well, look, Mallory's lost all of these things. He's lost his girl. He's lost his grandmother. He's lost his grant for his thesis. Uh, how is he going to dig himself out of that hole? And that, you know, that's the question for Mallory, but that's also a question that you hope will drive a reader uh, to get back up. As um, um, the, One of my favorite examples of how that works is uh, I live now in Rome in the land of uh, Dante, and Dante's Inferno starts with Dante essentially having a midlife crisis. He says, I'm in the middle of the road of life, the right road lost. And he is really thinks that he's about as low as he can go. And then the poet Virgil, who's been dead for a thousand years, comes along and says, you think you're low now? Let me take you down into hell and let me show you how low you can get. And he takes him down, 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 shows him all these sinners. And they finally get down to the bottom part of hell where there's Satan with, you know, three great betrayers in his mouth, Brutus and Cassius and Judas uh, in his mouths. And Dante, you know, I won't say which anatomical part of <laughs> Satan he's in, but that's where he is. But guess what? After, and this is after hundreds and hundreds of lines that Dante writes about this, once he's really in the darkest, stinkiest part, 33 lines later, he's back up on the surface again and he sees the stars. Mm. So I think that as a writer, what you do is you take your characters through this kind of journey and you put them in difficult situations and you find that as they get into more and more difficult situations, they develop a certain kind of strength and that strength allows them 
in the darkest of the nights to pull themselves out and get themselves to the surface and once more see the stars. Yeah, you've you've spent time not just as a, a novelist, but you've spent time in the world of literary criticism. Uh, so, like, it, like, what's your like? It, it, Coming from that perspective, you're kind of like when you throw throw this out there, you can be like, "Oh my gosh, the uh, the shoe is on the other foot now." <laughs> like, is that a weird experience? Well, you know, yes and no. You mean that other people are now going to review my book and and say what they want about it? No, I mean you you know exactly what that's worth. Um, uh, I spent five years reviewing novels for the Los Angeles Times uh, book review uh, back when they had a 24 page standalone book review. It was a wonderful thing, and. Uh, you know, every year I said to my editor, you know, I'd really like to write an article about how there are very few books that I find that are really genius and very few books that I find that are real stinkers. And most of everything else in terms of my reviews depends on how well I slept the night before and what I ate for dinner. It's, uh, (laughs) you know, that's the honest part about it when you, when you come down to it. Uh, and in terms of how do you write something? So I have a fairly, um, you know, I'd like to think I've got myself a fairly measured uh, distance from reviews. At the turn of the last century, T.S. Eliot, uh, you know, didn't, you know, turn in his dissertation, I think, uh, in philosophy because he thought philosophy was just caught in a kind of cul-de-sac and went into literary criticism uh, because he thought literary criticism was actually a place where he said, you know, the problem with with philosophers is they don't understand their sentences and don't know what metaphors mean. And a, and a good, a good, a good uh, poet or not, you know, generally knows that stuff. So, I mean, what do you think the state of literary criticism is today? I mean, do you think like what kind of academic things shape it? I mean, is it, I mean, I've heard some people say that it's interesting as philosophy has gone more in the direction of criticism, that criticism has kind of gotten more ideological and there's kind of, I mean, how do you like, what do you make of the lay of the land? Well, a very good book that I just read is, uh, is a book by A.O. Scott, the, uh, the film critic of the New York Times, who wrote a book called Better Living Through Criticism that he wrote essentially in response to us, uh, was uh, Samuel Lawrence's attack on him for not getting the Avengers movie and, and, and saying something <laughs> critical about it. We actually and, reviewed uh, that book extensively on our website. Uh, yeah, oh, you so, did? Uh, okay, yeah, good. yeah, yeah. And I think one of the points that uh, that Scott makes that's very good is that, you know, everything is criticism, that uh, septimania is criticism. I mean, I'm referring, there are a lot of things that I refer to in there. Dante is one thing, uh, uh, but in terms of talking about scientific writing, in terms of talking about math, in terms of talking about religious uh, matters in there, I'm using my critical faculty to talk about those things. And also at the same time, the writing of good critics, of, of critics like Scott, are pieces of literature. They're adding, uh, they're adding to the literature. They're adding to the, uh, the world that we know. Now, I'm the son of a philosopher, so I'm tickled to hear <laughs> you know, the T.S. Eliot uh, um, you know, quote there. But I think that in a way, what, we're, what maybe Eliot was looking for, that we're all looking for, is we're looking for, again a way to, you know, to find a form that suits us as individuals to in- explore the kinds of questions that move us. And at one time, philosophy might have been a very good medium to do that, and another literary criticism seemed like it had power to do it. I'd like to believe that the novel is that kind of form. Uh, but then again, uh, I mean, my father's still alive. He's 86 years old. Um, you know, part of it is we all want to prove ourselves to our fathers that somehow we found a better way rather than writing uh, philosophy, uh, you know, let's put philosophy into a good story that more people than just um, the Illuminati can somehow read and can, uh, can take on. 
Would your dad have rather you become a philosopher than a novelist? Oh, I think he's. I think he's perfectly fine now. I mean, I think uh, uh, you know his persuasion back at the time when I might have done something like that and had an academic career was based on the notion that um, uh, you know having a job in academia was a great thing because you got the summers off and you had tenure and you got a great apartment and you got all the education for your kids paid for. And I've got to tell you, for my friends in my generation, that ain't the case anymore. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so all the benefits go out the window and, and therefore the, re, you know, the rationale for philosophy, um, you know, for him, philosophy was very much of a personal, uh, savior as it were. He was studying in fact, to be a rabbi. And when he took a course in philosophy in which uh, a professor proved to his, uh, uh, to his satisfaction, that one could be a moral person without a belief in God. Hmm. And so that was a lightning bolt for him. You know, that was in a way, uh, you know, his road to Damascus. And the um, and that gave him a passion for philosophy in which he found uh, that philosophy, and especially philosophy of science, was a form in which he could ask and answer many of the questions that were pushing him, which were many of the questions that were pushing him when he was studying to be a rabbi. So, uh, uh, you know, we, and for me, you know, as a kid, I grew up as a reader. I grew up uh, reading novels. My mother uh, got a master's in English, you know, so I was reading James Joyce when I was a teenager. And I thought, yeah, these are the, this is the way that I like to ask questions. These are the kinds of, uh, uh, this kind of format appeals to me a lot more than reading uh, uh, Plato or Kant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not many people read Kant on the beach. I mean, it's not really a... Uh... No, no, it, you, know, you, <laughs> you know, the sand that gets in between the sentences, it just is not conducive to a sort of deep, uh, you know, long words in German, it just gets dirty. <laughs> yeah, you eventually get tired in the sun of looking for the verb at the end of the that, sentence. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And you're the grandson of... Of a rabbi too. Right? I'm a grandson of two rabbis. Yeah, both my uh, both my parents uh, were children of rabbis. One an Orthodox rabbi, one a conservative rabbi. Do you? I mean, do you do you identify? Would you identify still religiously in in the Jewish tradition? Like, is that? I mean, where you locate yourself if you had to? Well, I, you know, I'd say there is, there was a philosopher Isaiah Berlin. Oh uh, yeah, who uh, was once asked whether he was proud of being a Jew, and he said the question doesn't actually make sense. He says, you know, it's like asking me, am I proud that I have two arms and two legs? You know, it's 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 what I am. And so the Jewish tradition is something I was certainly born into. I think that the the way in which I started to identify within it had more to do with my discovery of what I would call Jewish mythology, mm. uh, and that came in my 20s. And these fascinating stories, as people try to make sense of scripture, uh, caught me. And, you know, I loved them within the Jewish tradition, but what they did was they were also, uh, they also tied in very much into other traditions, into Greek mythology, but then also, uh, you know, into, uh, you know, I would say Christian mythology as well. I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of time in Europe, and spending a lot of time in Europe means you're spending a lot of time in, in churches uh, seeing a lot of paintings and seeing the iconography, not only in the Western uh, uh, European Christianity, but also I've traveled to Georgia, I've traveled to Russia, and seen a lot of the ways that stories are, uh, you know, have changed and have, uh, that people have tried to make sense of their own cultures within uh, Christianity as well. And then also within Islam. And this is fascinating. But it, I think it was that when you ask in terms of the identity that, yes, I was very pleased that I could latch on to uh, these, uh, these stories, this Jewish mythology, as something I could say, okay, uh, you know, this stuff I can 
I can latch on to. I can not so much believe in, but I can pick up. And I'm proud to, uh, you know, to wear it and to think that this is also a part of Judaism. It's not just going to synagogue and praying in a language I don't understand. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so uh, that's, that's my short way of saying, well, sort of. You have, uh, like, Septimania is an incredibly cosmopolitan uh, novel. I mean, not just uh, culturally sophisticated, but it even stretches across time and different time periods. Uh, is that, like, I mean, is that, I mean, it strikes me that that's reflective of your life. I mean, my, my sense is that you're regularly interacting with people, socializing, dialoguing with people that are from a myriad of kind of cultures and religions or a religious or believe in all sorts of different takes on the world. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's what I like to do. I, as I said, I live in Rome now, but I've lived in England at various times in my life. Um, I've most, I grew up mostly in New York, but I lived in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, I grew up in Cleveland in a Polish Catholic neighborhood. And it was only at the age of 10 uh, when my friend Paul Zenizek went down to be a choir boy, uh, to be an altar boy, that I realized that I couldn't go to St. Anne's and do the same thing. And, you know, I got his Sunday morning paper route as a result, but it was... Uh, <laughs> hey, but, I mean, there are worse things. Hey, you happen. know, there are... Uh, except the Sunday morning plain dealer was a really heavy newspaper, let me tell you. It's a, uh, but it was... Uh, but in that sense, that kind of exposure has been part of my life. And I think this is, uh, this is tremendously valuable to a curious person. I, I want to commend to our listeners, uh, Septimania. It's a really great book. And I was, uh, after I finished it, I called my wife at work and said, um, this is a really great book. <laughs> so, so that's, uh, I think C.S. Lewis says that, you know, when you really enjoy something, um, you, you want to praise it because it, it, and to not do so, it's almost, call, it, it's unnatural. You have to repress it. So uh, I can think of no better endorsement for the book than I, I offered it spontaneous praise to the woman I love. <laughs> that's lovely, Scott. Thank you very much. And, uh, and my apologies to your wife in case she's disappointed. If she, <laughs> but, I, uh, but I appreciate her patience. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for taking some time with us. Okay, thank you again, Scott. And good ideas are rarer still So listen and be wise Just forget the other guys Cause my idea's no good for three Oh baby, my idea Ooh, my idea My Once again on the mocking cast, after some technical difficulties by the otherwise always reliable Skype. I mean, what a wonderful technological marvel. I love it. Back is David Zoll, who has a haircut, David. It's true. All, all of my hairs got cut, as they say. My ears lowered. I feel like You'll, a new man. The animating force of the zeitgeist is looking good there in Virginia. And Sarah Condon is not in Texas right now. No, and I'm still in a bathrobe, so definitely didn't get a haircut. Um, I'm in Sewanee, Tennessee still for my uh, my husband because he's getting a doctorate of ministry over the next few summers here. Sarah, you wear a bathrobe well. I mean, this isn't a video cast, but I would have not known. It looked like a kind of cool sweaterish sort of thing. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. It's a bathrobe. Yeah. You, you look lovely. <laughs> so th this week... We there's really something funny that you shot our way, David. I say that like David never sends anything funny. Like, <laughs> oh wow! I mean, I'm sorry for saying that in a pejorative fashion, but this is uh, from McSweeney's Timothy McSweeney's um, website. I've never I don't I don't know that I've looked at McSweeney's before, but this is a helpful guide 
to lesser-known af- religious affiliations provided by Shannon Reed. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, I thought it was pretty funny. It's McSweeney's is... Um, Dave Eggers started it, I believe, with some other people, so it's kind of really uh, literary stuff, but they're... Um, it was also started as a humor magazine. Anyway, Shannon Reed here uh, gives us some new terminology that we'd never used before. Things like, you know, what does it mean to be um, freshman year religious uh, is to sort of make sure you can take get class off for every single holiday of every religion. Or freshman year spiritual means that you uh, play hacky sack. Um, so everybody says they're spiritual but not religious these days. Um, admires Richard Gere's quiet certitude, but I've never heard the spiritual and religious that you go to traditional worship service and to Burning Man. <laughs> <laughs> Which one of these did you guys read and you were most like, that's me? Uh, I mean, th- I, th- I thought, I thought the OC, the, uh, what is it? Only Christmas Easter OCD, the OCE OCD. Attends church only on Christmas and Easter, but will not not brook any other way of celebrating the holiday. <laughs> yeah. And then if you're an, if you're if you're O C E O C D O B X, that means you're all of the above, but just in North Carolina on the Outer Banks. <laughs> I, I I you know I would I would like to go to Burning Man. I mean, I could be spiritual and religious, but I but I don't do well without showers. Like like I don't uh, like to camp and stuff like that. Like, man, I, mean, I went I went to Bonnaroo and it was. There are not a lot of showers there. It was rough. It's mm. uh, Yeah, it's a commitment to a cause to go to those events for sure. So I read this and the one I was most like, that's totally me, is um, Plane Ride Spiritual. Like, praise oh, on yeah. the New York beginning with. So if anyone up there, so yesterday we were in, if anyone up there can hear me, yesterday we're, um, I took the kids into Chattanooga and they have this incline uh, train that was built not reassuringly in 1895. And um, as we're going up it, I said to my son, I was like, he's five. I was like, mama may need to say the Lord's Prayer. And he leans over and he's like, say it, mama, show it off. And I was like, just kidding. I'm not going to say the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> That's totally me on an airplane. Like, you know, I just start praying out loud. So, Well, then you, you have a plane ride atheist that during turbulence takes their iPhone out. Of, of airplane mode so they can watch the Gilmore Girls. I so admire those people on planes, like who are just totally cool. They do that, you know, they're just like, whatever, it'll be fine. Like, oh, it's amazing. I, I'm actually one of those, I'm, or I'm, a, I'm one of those people that never puts into airplane mode. I guess that's everyone, right? You guys ever put anything into airplane mode? No, I, I don't do that. I don't put it in airplane mode. Yeah. And I, and I mess with my phone and I, I watch to see if the stewardess is coming by or the yeah. flight attendant. It's the law. The law. Yeah. And then uh, there was a link on here. Uh, I followed how many members of each of the following religions it takes to screw in a light bulb. Amish, none, because they don't use light bulbs. And Anglicans, one. Baptists, one. Branch Davidians, one. Everyone else is one, basically. <laughs> Except the Amish. On Unorthodox, uh, they had uh, the tablet magazine's, I guess, grandson call in from Israel. And he had a joke, a knock-knock joke. And the kid goes, knock-knock. And they go, you know, who's there? The Holocaust. The Holocaust, too. I thought you said you'd never forget. Oh my God. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> You're a six year old, ten, seven year old, tell that. It was just like, uh, yeah, I literally lol On a more serious note, or at least semi serious, we have this interesting article that comes to us from The New Yorker, which poses a question what are the odds that we are living in a computer sim- simulation, AKA The Matrix? 
Yeah, I guess Elon Musk um, said something really provocative uh, at one of his recent press conferences that he's, he's, he's become more and more convinced that we actually are living in an elaborate computer simulation. Uh, and the, the, one of the things about living in a computer simulation is that you wouldn't know you're living in a computer simulation, but this is very, the, the writer who, who wrote it up for the New Yorker, Joshua Rothman, he, he kind of talks about it as a way that, um, atheists or just non-religious folks can talk about theology because they're sort of positing is there, are we, do we have access to all of reality? Uh, who designed this, this, uh, you know, um, simulation we're in and why would they include so much suffering and what's going on here? I thought it was really interesting article. Yeah, me too. I love articles like this. Sarah, what are the odds you think that we're because he never really gives us the odds. What are the odds? Is it two to one, three to one, one to six, one to, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. It's it. It reminds me of how, um, you know, like sci-fi movies from the 1950s, like projected this future that really doesn't exist in most ways. Like we're all. I don't know. Like we're, I don't know. It, it, it's also it's a really high anthropology, right? That like people down the road like are are have this much sophistication, and also that they're like that invested in us. Like there was all this stuff about like how you would, um, like improve the the morality of people over time and i don't know it, yeah I mean, we, we would interesting have become to think about but ethically mature yeah i was like what would we is that what would happen yeah well, you know it's funny in the matrix that the matrix had a pretty realistic anthropology right because they said you know we created this ideal world you know and you guys kept freaking out like so we added suffering and disease and other things and yeah. it mellowed everybody out yeah <laughs> so then we tried to make a utopia for you to keep you at least happy while you were human duracell batteries but you didn't like it you wanted a, a kind of a crappy and dismal world so. mm. yeah, but interesting i mean interesting and it's just uh, it goes to show i mean it's funny because like all argument all argumentation is circular to some degree right like somebody says well, why do you think the bible's authoritative because the bible says they're authoritative and the, you know the skeptic says well i think human reason should be authoritative why because human reason tells me it should be authoritative but really right. you know what like epistemologically well first off certainty is a is a you know fool's errand but you know when you this is like the cartesian problem right when descartes allegedly you know, sat in a big oven not while it was on but tried to figure out like what could you know indubitably and all he figured out that he could know is that he's a thinking substance that everything else could be he might not have a body he might be the only thinking substance. He could be, in it, but he can't deny that he's sentient. So <laughs> if certainly that's all you can know, the cogito, as they call it in the Latin, I believe. It's been a while since I've st- read Descartes, at least a couple of years. But. Moving on from Descartes on to the question of a more interesting speculative question from speculation to speculation. Did Jesus have a wife? Yeah. Uh, if you haven't read uh, this sort of been making the rounds this week on the interwebs that the, the Atlantic has this lengthy bit of investigative journalism, which is honestly, it's, I've come not to expect that from the Atlantic. You sort of, they're like really the king of think pieces, but this would, uh, the fragment of papyrus with the Coptic phrase uh, for Jesus's wife or Mary Magdalene sort of being a disciple uh, that made all the waves back in 2012. This journalist traced the ownership of the previous ownership of that piece of papyrus. And he uncovered the most bonkers uh, 
story you could have possibly imagined that manages to combine you know the fall of the berlin wall the the stasi in uh, in the east eastern uh, the secret police in east germany with uh you know southern floridian uh, pornographers and uh you know maybe this has got to be made into some kind of a movie it's that, the- that's what i was thinking it's funny because it's it looks like this guy who um is it uh fritz harold harold fritz or no Charles? uh walter fritz walter fritz who looks like he could be a movie star. I mean, he just looks like, and he has apparently been in some adult films. It's a cri- <laughs> critical acclaim. It looks like, uh, as is his wife. Um, but you know, he, he is this guy that like, he is an Egyptologist and then winds up, you know, yeah, he's a tour guide for the Stasi museum. And then he winds up sort of, uh, you know, owning an automobile, automobile, com- like an automotive company in Florida, which is a subsidiary of this German thing, which he seems to, through this German guy, have got an annex of his company and convinced the guy to help him forge unknowingly a, b- a bill of sale for this, for this, you know, f- looks like fraudulent document. But like, I think this guy, it seems like his motivation is to, is to write a book. Like he, he bought, uh, the web domain, right? Does Jesus have a gospel of Jesus wife.com? Yeah. So it looks like he was going to write a book and get a movie. It's funny, but I would sell the rights to the movie of the story. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, compelling. Yeah, this is a better story than the, than the, the Da Vinci Code knockoff he was going to try to sell. Yeah. <laughs> I have a, um, a clergy buddy, Episcopal priest, uh, named Tim Skank, and he has a great blog called Clergy Confidential. And he did this. Maybe we can link to it. Um, and as the weekends, but he did this great top 20 reasons not to be Jesus's wife when this came out. <laughs> and it's stuff like um, every time he forgets to stop by the grocery store on the way home, he gives me the same thing. Uh, loaves and fish, loaves and fish. Um, or like, <laughs> like one is like, pick up your cross and follow me. That's rich coming from someone who can't even pick up his socks off the bedroom floor. It's hilarious. It's like, when, t- when are these 12 guys going to get off my couch? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we never have time alone. Yeah, exactly. Wait, yeah. Is your is your yeah. friend's name Tim Skank? Yeah, Tim Skank. It's spelled so like, like S S C H E N K. I think. So that priest is literally a skank. Well, God. I mean, literally. Sure, he's never heard that one before. But I've never heard that one. He's awesome. He does. He does the um. Like the Lent madness stuff. He's a he's a cool guy. But we should link to it. But the uh, the the it turns out this morning it was reported that the the Harvard scholar Karen King, who kind of reported this whole thing, she's made a statement, kind of conceding that it was that it is a fakery. I mean, she, I don't think she did all this research, and you, you know, uh, clearly there's some motivated reasoning going on on all sides here, uh, and I'm sure we're guilty of it in our own ways too. But he, he she was a mark. It sounds like someone who was desperate for uh, this to be true, something about Jesus's wife, some sort of uh, that he like he basically honed in on her and got her to buy it. And you wonder how much of that goes on in higher criticism. Uh, Not not the kind of international intrigue that we it's the sort of Da Vinci Code ish. Uh, machinations, but it, it maybe is an extreme example of something that happens. But she, she's very humble and, and kind uh, in her sort of concession, especially for such a major thing. Sarah, did you, like, you studied higher criticism, YDS, I'm assuming? Mm. Like, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I do, I understand what David's saying. Like, I think there is this desperation for us uh, in those academic circles to have to have this find that no one else has had yet. 
um, and to say something completely new. And um, yeah, I really felt for her in reading this in a way that I didn't expect to. Because I remember when the story came out a few years ago. And um, yeah, I've, I, I felt for her in reading this now. Yeah, definitely. It, it's interesting. Higher criticism, like especially like text criticism, was the thing in sem- one of the things in seminar I loved studying that I never wanted to do. Like I, but it was fascinating to me. Like I, like the guys that would do. I knew this guy, at Princeton University, who could just whip through the codex and tell me all these things, like the manuscript traditions and stuff. Uh, so I think there's an interest to it. But it's funny if it was real, uh, it still would be so much later than the synoptics and even the Johannine tradition. So it, even if it was a legitimate thing, it would have been still like folk religion. I mean, this this kind of there's this Da Vinci Code kind of view that well. The canon was totally up for grabs. And Nicaea, everybody just said, you know, Dan Brown said by a close vote, you know, Jesus was voted divine. Well, I don't know where Dan Brown grew up. It's, it was 311 to 1, I think, or 2. That's a barn burner, right? That's not, that's not a kind of And also, you're going to try to convince me, like anybody that's done church work or been part of a church, that basically the leaders came out to the people and said, everything we've been doing, we're changing it all. And everybody's going to go, okay. Because the number one rule of congregations is... <laughs> We, we've never done it that way. And the right. second is like an unto it. We've always done it this way. So here's a guy that I don't know how he defines ties, Dan Brown, and he's obviously never talked to ministers who tried to change things. <laughs> That's... By, by the way, for our, for our listeners, if you want the best thing I've read on biblical criticism of late, and if you're a seminarian and you're just getting into it, or if you're someone that's a person that likes to read you know, theology, even though you're a, you're an educated lay person. I said, even though you're an educated lay person, like that's weird to be, but um, Pope Benedict's books on Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, there are three volumes and they are, I mean, it's the best thing on Jesus and the gospels I've read in the past 10 years. Wow. So there you go. And moving on, lastly, this is a piece that like I was blown away by. It's in the Wall Street Journal, right, David? Yes. I, I mean, talk about something that hit me between the eyes. It's called, um, the title is great, A Swimming Pool in the ICU. And it has a, um, a, a surgeon, I believe, uh, Dr. Wesley Eli, uh, describing a deathbed uh, baptism by immersion. And um, I mean, it reminded me a lot of Sarah and her sort of experience whenever she talks about being a hospital chaplain. It's always, it's, I always find that really, really um, important or, and, and all, not to mention moving. But here you have this family, this guy who's barely uh, cognizant, but he wants a baptism. And the entire staff just, uh, of the hospital decides to bring in an actual like swimming pool, a little, you know, a little plastic swimming pool and do an immersion. And his, his son baptizes him right there in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And um, it, he, it ends with this really powerful, um, I mean, who knows what this guy's life had been like, but um, he, he ends with this very powerful reflection on the difference between sympathy and empathy. So sympathy is feeling sorry for someone. Empathy is feeling with someone. In all the surrounding insanity of the hospital that day, diving deeply into Benny's life through his baptism on the breathing machine allowed us all of us to be reborn too. Being with him in that pool and rising with him out of it, we walked into others' lives better prepared to serve. I mean... It's just not the kind of testimony you expect to ever read in the newspaper or just anywhere. I was, I was 
really touched. What, what do you guys think? I loved this. I, I um, and I especially love the part you pointed out the empathy and the sympathy. You know, it's interesting in hospital chaplaincy, it used to kind of have this, you know, it had a denominational flavor. Hospitals are typically run by, um, by you know, the Catholic uh, archdiocese and um, or Catholic organizations. And it, the, what that meant was what you got religiously at the hospital in chaplaincy was a very specific experience. And we've seen a shift away from that. And and on some level, um, I mourn that shift. So the hospital I worked at um, was bought. We were Episcopal originally. And we were bought by a Catholic hospital. And originally, I mourned that a bit because, you know, there were just certain things that they did ritually that were so beautiful. Um, but there is this acknowledgement that other people come from different circumstances. So the fact that they brought a swimming pool Mm-hmm. into an ICU, I think is a testament to where chaplaincy is headed in some ways, that this is what the patient needed, so this is what we're going to do. And I think that's a miracle. I mean, I, for me, this was like really redemptive to read because I, 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 do, I do wonder about like where is chaplaincy headed? And I, I loved that this, is, um, that this could be a glimpse into that. Um, but I, I kept thinking about empathy and, um, and suffering and, and how in hospitals often and in life we're around, you know, we shield ourselves from people who are in great pain. You can't do that as easily in hospitals, but believe it or not, you can still do it when you're a hospital chaplain. You know, you don't want to be, it's easier to sympathize than to empathize in some ways um, Mm -hmm. because then you have to suffer alongside them. But what a gift that is. I mean, that really is, that's what makes chaplaincy as far as I'm concerned, the greatest job on the planet. Um, and I kept thinking when I was reading this of that Richard Rohr piece that we put up. Mm, this week, yeah. Yeah, and he he says, uh, one of the only ways God can get, get us to let go of our private salvation project is some kind of suffering. And this is why we Christians hang the cross at the center of our churches, why we kiss the cross and why we're saved by the cross. And it, which is funny, so this the, when the Catholic... Um, it's called Catholic Health Initiatives, when they bought St. Luke's in Houston, the one thing that they did keep is every single room, no matter who's in the room, has um, a crucifix in it, a small crucifix in it. I don't know. There's something very powerful about that. So, You know, David, you said something like, I don't know what this guy's life was like. And it's like, on one level, who cares? And yeah. <laughs> like, like, like baptism, you get in debates in the church about who can be baptized. Well, all baptism is provisional, right? We're all a mess. We, we don't know anybody. If baptism, it points outward to the, to the one to whom the, the dead and raised person now belongs, the baptism belongs, not internally to their own state of their soul, which who knows. But, you know, John Paul, uh, who was such an amazing figure, John Paul II, but he was very intentional at the end of his life when he had Parkinson's to be filmed just as much when he was shaking and drooling. Hmm. And it was a very inten- intentional witness kind of saying, look, I am no less part of the church or my witness is no less important when it's embarrassing it's a little humiliating. And, and I mean, here you see like both John Paul II and this old dying man both seem to have these beautiful witnesses treasure in clay jars. Um, mm. And it's funny because I was at a funeral recently and someone I knew well, and the, it was clear to me that like the emphasis for the pastor must have been on people's faith, <laughs> the subjective nature of their faith, not the object of it. Because he, he droned on and on about a person who is not a person of deep faith, it, like it, at least as many experienced him. But but it's more about the faithfulness of the good shepherd, right, <laughs> than, than than the capacity or internal GPS of the sheep. So I feel like if yeah, uh, if it's um, 
Thank God for stories like this. Um, uh, Scott, you, I'm sure you've read that appendix in PZ's Panopticon where he says, yeah. who, who do you yeah. want? What kind of a priest do you want? I mean, my father speaking as a Protestant clergyman is saying, you, you know, the truth is you, you kind of want a, uh, a cold, <laughs> just like maybe recovering alcoholic of a Catholic priest to sort of, cause, cause you know, he'll say the words. The, the, the Protestant may try to improvise in, in, out of, out of love and out of try to connection, but may end up kind of coming across as trite and sentimental. But the Catholic will, even if he's not very nice, he'll, he, he'll say the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He'll talk about ashes to ashes. And, um, it, that's what this reminded me of too. Or Sarah, especially when you talk about that, that's, that's one of the funniest things I think my father's ever written, actually. Mm. But it's also, um, there's some truth lurking there's, in it as there's, well. There's power in the name. Mm. Also, the empathy piece at the end just i mean everybody is i mean the shooting in orlando i mean there are no words and the few that sarah you've written a few and they were some of the best words i've read for anywhere um, and it's been written in some pretty big outlets thanks I, uh yeah i mean i was deeply moved and sent it to several people so i'd encourage our listeners if you haven't read it it's 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 really um, one of the few pieces that actually gra- grabbed some words that weren't um yeah that were meaningful and and suffering, but the, yeah, it called me to empathy, and I think uh, our prayers and thoughts are with those who lost people. Uh, and yeah, treasure in clay jars. Thanks for being with me, and I will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference on our website, embird.com. We love mail, so if you've got some feedback or suggestions or something just really struck a nerve and you want to tell us, please email us at info at embird.com. And if you like what you heard, please go over to iTunes and give us a rating and write a review. And then pass it on to a friend or tweet about it or write a Facebook post about it. We survive by the generosity and enthusiasm of our listeners. If you want to support us financially, every gift, no matter how modest, helps. You can go to embird.com forward slash support. Once again, thanks for listening and have a great weekend.